Welcome to the Sports Medicine Podcast, hosted by Dr. Andrew Dold, orthopedic surgeon and sports medicine specialist. Each episode, we'll be interviewing an expert in their respective field and exploring a variety of topics related to sports medicine. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Sports Medicine Podcast. We've got a fantastic episode for you today. This is a new concept that we've thought about. Uh, It's going to be called Journal Club, and we hope to do this every few months or perhaps on a quarterly basis. The idea is that we want to discuss relevant new literature in the sports medicine world. A journal club is something that most people are familiar with. However, unless you have access to an academic institution, this isn't something that you might be able to participate in on a regular basis. So the idea is to choose new relevant articles that have appeared recently in the sports medicine literature and use these articles as a backbone to generate discussion about new relevant topics in the sports medicine world that might be changing our practice and the way we do things. And perhaps if you don't have regular access to a journal club, this gives you the opportunity to sit in and just listen in uh, to discussion around these various topics and maybe catch up with some of the uh, more recent things that have appeared in the literature. Today, I'm joined by three other physicians. Uh, Each one of us is going to take a topic or a paper. All three of us are orthopedic surgeons who have completed fellowships in sports medicine. So for today's uh, journal club, I've picked four articles that have appeared in the literature over the past three months. I think they're all very relevant articles and things that are exciting and happening in the uh, sports medicine world. Each physician is going to present one of the articles. We're going to spend 10 minutes on each article, so roughly 40 minutes in total. Uh, and the rule is it's going to be 10 minutes. So I'm going to start my timer. At the end of 10 minutes, I'm going to ask the, the physician who presents it to give us their one take-home message about the article. So, for instance, if you the first article is going to be presented about femoral acetabular impingement uh, and, and hip arthroscopy. So if you're not a fan of hip arthroscopy, you can maybe skip ahead And that's going to be the start around discussion of our second article and so forth for the third and fourth ones. So the first article is presented by Dr. Sheena Black. Its title is Predictors of Persistent Postoperative Pain at Minimum Two Years After Arthroscopic Treatment of Femoral Acetabular Impingement. It's published in AJSM in March 2019. The second article is going to be presented by Dr. Michael Kerr. Uh, the title is Liposomal Bupivacaine Reduces Opioid Consumption After Rotator Cuff Repair in a Randomized Controlled Trial. I think this is a very relevant article given the opioid crisis that's currently going on in this country uh, and gives us maybe an alternative to decrease uh, our opioid consumption following surgery. Uh, This was published in the Journal of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery actually in May of 2019, so it's it's an e-publication ahead of release. The third article is uh, titled Bridge Enhanced Anterior Cruciate Ligament Repair, Two-Year Results of a First-in-Human Study. This is published in the Orthopedic Journal of Sports Medicine uh, recently in March 2019. Uh, it's out of Boston Children's Hospital, and it's looking at this new concept of ACL ligament repair rather than reconstruction, which I think is getting quite a bit of coverage right now in the sports medicine world. And this article is going to be presented by Dr. Brett Rayner. Finally, the fourth article is going to be presented by me. It's from the Journal of Arthroscopy in January 2019. Its title is Intraarticular Injection of Platelet-Rich Plasma is Superior to Hyaluronic Acid or Saline Solution in the Treatment of Mild to Moderate Knee Osteoarthritis, a Randomized Double-Blind Triple Parallel Placebo-Controlled Trial. So I'm going to discuss this article. I think there's a few pretty surprising results in there. I'm also going to compare it to another article which published a month later uh, in AJSM, also looking at the differences between PRP and hyaluronic acid for the treatment of mild to moderate OA. If you're interested in being a guest for a future episode, please reach out to us. Again, you can get us on social media, Facebook or Instagram. It's at the Sports Medicine Podcast. Uh, and you can contact us by email. The email is thesportsmedicinepodcast at gmail.com. Finally, today's episode is brought to you by Plymouth Medical. Plymouth Medical is an organization specializing in regenerative medicine for sports medicine and orthopedic physicians. Their business model is unique in that they offer a portfolio of complete product solutions, which covers the therapeutic continuum from the moment the patient walks in the door until surgical intervention. Their products include branded hyaluronic acid injections, 
uh, autologous cell therapies, including the m system for PRP, and other things like wireless ultrasound probes. So you can learn more about Plymouth Medical by visiting their website. It's PlymouthMedical.com. Something exciting, they're going to be doing a giveaway for a free m centrifuge. This is for the m PRP system, which I think is awesome. So visit our website, uh, thesportsmedicinepodcast.com. Uh, I'm going to have all of the details there and how you can enter in to, to win one of these centrifuges. So that's it for me, you guys. Thanks very much for listening in. Please feel free to give us a review on Apple iTunes and I hope you enjoy the episode. Cheers. Okay, here we are. Welcome to another episode of the Sports Medicine Podcast. I'm here with three guests today. We're going to go around the table here and introduce them. This is the first time we're doing this. It's about Journal Club. We're going to try and review some of the new literature in the sports medicine world and get some feedback on it and discussion going from some experts in sports medicine. So thank you guys for being here. First to my left here is Sheena Black. She is a member of Orthopedic Associates of Dallas, did her residency at UT Southwestern in Dallas, and then a fellowship at Hospital for Special Surgery in New York City. Did Thank I get you that for right? having me, Andrew. You're welcome. Thanks for coming. Next up is Mike Kerr. Mike's a partner at the WB Carroll Clinic in Dallas. He did his residency at HSS in New York City, and then a sports medicine fellowship at uh, Rush University in Chicago. Thanks, thanks for, for having me. Great yeah, to be thanks, here. Thanks for coming. And then finally, Brett Rayner, also a sports medicine trained physician here in Dallas residency at Vanderbilt University in Tennessee, and then a fellowship at Stedman Philippon in uh, Vail, Colorado. He's a partner at Texas Orthopedic Associates, also in Dallas. Glad to be here. Okay, so we're going to get started. The rules are we've got four articles here. Uh, we've picked these from some of the sports medicine literature. They're all very recent, and we're going to dedicate about 10 minutes to discussion. Each one of us is going to take, take an article. I'm going to time 10 minutes, and then at the end of 10 minutes, I'm going to sort of cap it off, and we're going to get just the take-home message from each one of these, sort of like a journal club like we would do in residency or fellowship. gives people a chance to maybe listen along, see some thoughts about uh, this new stuff in the sports medicine world, and just sort of appraise the literature and see what we think, uh, and we'll, we'll take it from there. This is the first time doing this. We want to keep it pretty informal and just get the, your, your guys' thoughts about these articles. So ladies first, Sheena's going to lead us off here. So, and all of these articles are going to be published on the website. I'll have the full article there as PDF if you guys want to download them or uh, check them out there. So first is Sheena. This is, this is an article from the American Journal of Sports Medicine published in March of this year. Uh, it's predictors of persistent postoperative pain at minimum two years after arthroscopic treatment for femoral acetabular impingement. It's from Rush University in Chicago, uh, Shane Knows Group. That's where Mike did his, uh, his fellowship. So we're going to start 10 minutes now. So if you're listening along here and you don't like FAI or hip arthroscopy, you can forward about 10 minutes and that'll take you to the next article. But we'll, we'll, we'll do that. Sheena. So this case control study, like Andrew said, out of Rush University in Chicago with Shane Nose Group, evaluated 668 patients who all underwent hip arthroscopy for CAM, pincer, and combined FAI by a single surgeon. The main purpose of this study was to determine if there were any preoperative factors or patient characteristics that could help determine which patients will have continued pain after hip arthroscopy for FAI. Those patients with hip dysplasia and advanced arthritic changes were excluded from the study. Of these 668 patients, 75% had limited pain and 25%, which translates into 174 patients, had persistent pain as defined by a higher postoperative visual analog scale score of greater than 30, which was set by the 75th percentile of all scores in the study at two years. What they found was that the patients with persistent postoperative pain were older and had lower preoperative patient-reported outcome scores, including the modified Harris HIP score, HIP outcome score, and IHOT 12. When evaluating patient-reported outcome scores from pre-op to post-op, all patients had significant improvements in pain and functional patient-reported outcome scores in both groups. However, those patients with persistent pain had lower scores overall. Probably the biggest thing they found um, based on their logistic regression analysis was that having a history of mental illness, including depression or anxiety, or undergoing a revision hip arthroscopy were both predictors of persistent postoperative pain at two years after hip arthroscopy. Older age, sex, previous spine surgery, and pre-op narcotic usage were not predictors of continued pain based on their logistic, logistic regression analysis. 
other factors they looked at were that a higher level of our of athletic participation and running were actually found to be protective against developing persistent pain postoperatively. They also found that lower back pain was not associated with poor patient-reported outcomes. However, they did find that patients with previous spinal surgery may be at increased risk for persistent pain. I think the good things about this study was a large cohort of patients from a single surgeon. The study was carried out to two years, which I think is important because other studies have shown that there's no additional improvements in pain after one year after hip arthroscopy. Um, some limitations: this was done at a high volume hip by done a high volume hip arthroscopist at a large tertiary referral center, and potentially not all patients were clinically diagnosed with depression or anxiety. So. I think we talked a little bit about this before, but a couple of things that I think about this trial. First of all, we talked about VAST score. So for people that aren't familiar, there's a visual analog scale score. So it's basically a line, a horizontal line across the page from zero to a hundred. Zero is no pain. A hundred is extreme pain. And the patient gets asked to put a dash where their pain falls. So how they determined whether you had persistent pain here was whether or not you drew a line greater than 30 millimeters or three centimeters down the way. And what I think is, I, I don't know if it's impressive or how you would call it, but 25% of people, so one out of four of the patients here had persistent pain after a hip scope, which I don't know if that's being honest or if that's a good way of defining it, but what do you guys think? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I looked at that, and I, I circled that when I was reading it, and a fourth of people have persistent pain. You know, the question is whether or not their persistent pain is still better than what they started with. Uh, you know, hip arthroscopy is a great operation for the right application, but it's not a perfect operation. You know, sure. People, people's hips don't necessarily feel normal after we put them on traction, cut their capsule, and um, change their bony anatomy. So it's, you know, some people have persistent pain afterwards, but you know, even if they do a lot of times it's still better than before the operation. I don't know, um, if they were able to tease that out with these 25%. Yeah. I think <laughs> everyone improved, mm -hmm. but these were the ones that just didn't improve to a level that made them blow having persistent pain. Is that right? Right. Yeah. yeah I don't, you know, looking on average, nobody, Nobody was worse than where they started. Everybody still improved in that persistent pain group, which I think is important for patients to know. Yeah. It was also good that if you read in the discussion there, running was negatively correlated with post-operative pain. So if you were a runner and you went for a hip scope, you had a better chance of not having persistent pain afterwards. All right as well. So I'm going to tell my patients to all start running. Yeah. Maybe it'd be better if they were runners when they came to you. <laughs> what else? Did they define, I mean, how, what was the definition of psychiatric disorder? Is it just like a wastebasket term? So they didn't really discuss that in this paper as much, which I think was one, another limitation. Um, I didn't see in there where they actually define this. I know some of my other colleagues around the country are collecting the promise um, outcome tool. And so uh, I think, you know, potentially they could have included that in this study, but it doesn't really clarify as well how they did that. Yeah, because I mean, I'm not sure that you would exclude somebody from an operation based on that. But, you know, in terms of in your clinic, trying to counsel somebody preoperatively about their chances of having persistent pain afterwards, you know, picking that up as an orthopedic surgeon, that's not necessarily our forte. But I mean, there are ways to get around it. If you look through the list of medications, I guess, and you see there are multiple medications and uh, the, these are things that you can look look at and so you can sort of temper expectations or just manage those expectations preoperatively but let them know that they can still get benefit even if they have some persistent pain afterwards i think that's one of the important things of the study right and it, i mean with the patient reported outcomes it said that i, I guess this is sort of unfortunate it said that patients with persistent post-operative pain demonstrated significantly lower preoperative scores so the worse you are preoperatively which is maybe a patient who you're thinking about indicating for this surgery more than someone who's not that bad is going to have a worse chance of doing well, I suppose, or maybe a better chance of having persistent pain. Do you guys agree with that? Or right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one way. To, <clears throat> one way to look at it. I think that you know this this study, having worked with Shane and knowing the database and 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 working with it, um, more than anything else, this is kind of. I think it's important to the literature, but it also isn't surprising at all. I think in any any surgery we do in sports, I think this is applicable to most most things, including hip arthroscopy, obviously. Um, revision surgery and people who have a history of anxiety or depression, uh, I think in most outcome studies have, have been shown to do worse. And so I think that more than anything in terms of how to educate 
uh, other doctors and how to talk to patients. What this does for me is it gives me a tool to set. I think Brett just said the key word. It's about, it's all about setting patient expectations Yeah. and about being able to counsel your patients effectively and give them insight that this might still improve them and it might still be the right thing to do. But just in terms of being real with them and being clear about what they can expect after surgery, I think especially going through something like a hip scope is just crucial. I think this is just more more tools in the toolbox in order to be able to do that effectively. Yeah, because the other thing about hip arthroscopy is this is it's it's you know, I tell patients this is not a knee scope. You know, a knee scope we could probably give you a stick totally. to stick to bite on. We could do one right here. A hip scope is much different and so much slower to offer that to pay. There's a lot more conservative management that goes into it, both from a trying to get them better without surgery perspective and it's a big recovery uh, with some post-operative restrictions and there's also some insurance pre-certification hoops that you have to jump through to get this approved and so people who are having a lot of pain and they're on that lower pain spectrum at least you've tried everything and you can counsel them that that you should get improvement you may still have some pain but we've tried everything else and so i think we should proceed forward with surgery the other thing that they commented on in this paper is that you know, you are going to see revision hip scopes in your lifetime because there was a different focus back in the day of either labral debridement or there's more focus on the soft tissue and not as much on bony resection from the cam. And so I I don't think that it's avoidable for us to not see revision hip arthroscopy if you're going to do hip scopes. Sure. And just another reminder, just to, you know, proceed with caution and really take your time when you have revision cases about getting proper workup and just as, as Mike was saying, just setting expectations around the operation absolutely um okay is that enough with that one what's the take-home message so the take-home message from this article is that as a hip arthroscopy surgeon this can help with patient selection and like everybody else said this information needs to be stressed in the preoperative discussion with patients from this paper patients undergoing a revision hip arthroscopy were eight times more likely to experience persistent post-operative pain And similarly, patients with preoperative diagnoses of depression and anxiety were 84% more likely to report persistent pain. Like I said, I don't think it's avoidable to operate on these two subsets of patients, but it is important for them to know that they should and will have improvements in their pain and function after surgery as compared to pre-op. However, they are more likely to have persistent pain, but this article is not saying that they're going to have worse pain. Awesome. Okay, that's pretty much exactly at 10 minutes. We're going to move on to article number two that we chose here. We got Mike Kerr up next. This is a journal of shoulder and elbow surgery. This was actually an e-publication, so the journal is going to be published in May of this year, 2019. And it's a topic that we see a little bit more of that's coming into to everything we do in sports medicine, but this is a shoulder uh, article. It's Liposomal bupivacaine reduces opioid consumption after rotator cuff repair in a randomized controlled trial, uh, JSES, 2019, May. Um, I guess this it sort of talks about this opioid crisis that we're going through right now. You can't really open up any orthopedic journal and not hear something about uh, opioids and what we're doing yeah. about it. <clears throat> or turn on the news for that matter. I mean, right. I think that this is a very timely article, and I think it's applicable to a lot of us, especially those of us who do shoulder surgery. And so this is uh, the ONS group out of Greenwich, Connecticut, put this study together. Paul Seth, he's the lead author. And basically what they're looking at is one of the most frequently painful surgeries that we do, uh, arthroscopic rotator cuff repairs. Uh, and they were looking at whether they could reduce opioid consumption in these, in these patients in the short term. And I think that's a really important part of this article. They're looking mainly at the first five days after surgery. And so <clears throat> what this group did is they took 50 patients uh, randomize them to either receive the operative intervent- or the operative intervention, which in this case, everybody got an interscalene local regional anesthetic block. And then the control group, that's all they got. They were then managed with normal traditional opioids afterwards. The uh, experimental group, in addition to getting the interscalene block, got a field block and a suprascapular nerve block with liposomal bupivacaine. Uh, most of us who operate and work in the OR know that as Expiril. That's the trade name. Um, I don't think I checked with an anesthesiologist friend of mine. I don't think there is a generic equivalent of that yet. So mo- I think the, the way yeah. that most of us know that is Expiril. And so what they did is randomize these patients. These patients didn't know whether they were getting the, the intervention or not. Once they had gotten the block and were prepped and draped, they then performed a field block, which they described through the paper in a very standardized way, and a scu- suprascapular nerve block. They then did the operation, and 
their uh, inclusion and exclusion criteria clear in the article. Basically, you had to have a full thickness rotator cuff tear uh, and undergo repair to have this intervention. They then monitored, they gave these patients pain journals and watched them for five days uh, and basically had them, without doing a strict pill count, had the patients report how much opioid they uh, consumed. And then also, similar to what Andrew was saying earlier about visual analog pain scores, also report their pain scores back through the use of a pain journal. They then looked at what the opioid consumption was in these patients and what their pain level was. What they found is that, especially in the first two days, the patients who had the operative intervention of the uh, suprascapular nerve block and the field block with the expiril or liposomal bupivacaine had much lower pain scores. That then, at day three, the pain scores became less statistically significant. But over the five-day period, they did consume significantly less in terms of opioids. They also didn't ask for as many refills of their opioid pain medication. Um, and so basically the conclusion of the article was that doing this kind of intervention with a long-acting anesthetic in, in, um, in your patients could potentially, uh, A, help with early, i.e. day one, day two pain control, but also... Uh, require you to prescribe less in terms of uh, the total consumption of opioids over the course of five, five days. And then they extra- extrapolated to say that this likely would mean less overall total prescriptions of opioid prescriptions for this subset of patients. So let's talk a bit about that because I got a couple questions for you. So yeah. so both groups get the interscaling block, but Correct. the, but the um, experimental group. experimental group gets this so I want you to tell us about that because it's not another nerve block, but well, well it is. They say it's a super sca- super scaling nerve, but they don't do that under ultrasound. They just did it in how they injected they it. Super scapular notch, right? super so scapular notch. By exactly, definition, yeah. when you when you inject there, you're gonna you're gonna hit the super scapular nerve, and then their rationale for how they do the field block, and I can't adequately describe it probably audibly, but it, there is a good yeah, figure it's a good the there's a good drawing of it um, of basically a triangle throughout the shoulder, and then they injected in and injected as they came out. And the, again, the article describes very thoroughly how they did. It. I think they did a good the authors did a good job of describing that. It's important in terms of reproducibility. Um, so they took twenty ml of liposomal came and diluted it with forty ml of saline. saline. So yeah. you got sixty total, twenty two gauge natal, and you basically just work your way around the, the acromion yeah. and inject it. One, I think it was one point five centimeter intervals, uh, intervals and kind yeah. of inject and pull back as you do it. Correct. So, but they didn't use the liposomal came for the block. Right. Have you guys done much surgery where the anesthesiologists are are doing expirel for the actual block? So I, I have, and in select patients, my anesthesiologist has been substituting the Expirel for just standard either Ropivacaine or whatever he was using beforehand. And I've noticed that it actually has been very effective. You know, they it, it it's supposed to last three days. I don't think it lasts the three days. Um, it lasts longer than the, uh, and this is all anecdotal, just, yeah. just from what I've seen in the several that we've done. Um, it lasts longer than the standard blocks, and I think it wears off a little bit slower. It gives you a little bit more of a warning time to start taking the pain medicine, which is why I think it's been a little bit more effective in the, in the select few that we've done it in. The thing that you have to watch out for is that any interscaling block has a potential of uh, you know, blocking the phrenic nerve, and right. people can have some respiratory issues or just feel like they're short of breath as a result of that. And it's not that big of a deal unless they have some underlying respiratory issues, and that, that's one of, the, one of the contraindications to doing it. But it is approved for interscaling block. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Sheena? I've done it on a couple cases, but I think it's just as it's becoming more yeah. popular. And So I'll just say just anecdotally, we talked about this a little bit before, but I did a, uh, a an arthroscopic AC with a dog bone a couple of weeks ago on a younger guy, and they did do an Expirel nerve block on him. And I saw him yesterday at his two-week follow-up. And uh, one of the things he said was he was a little freaked out because he couldn't move his arm for about three days afterwards. Yeah. So I guess you gotta, you gotta you certainly have to tell the patients about this, but seems to do a wonderful job at post-operative pain control and what I've seen. But, you know, if you don't warn people that they're not going to be able to move their arm for a couple of days, it, you know, might be yeah. some concerns well, about that. And they're not without risks either. I mean, I for sure. That that's the other thing that's concerning to me. And I know that, um, it's interesting because where I, where did residency, uh, it's a huge regional, uh, pain anesthesia fellowship. So everything was done under block and in practice, um, most of the stuff I do is under general anesthesia. We have, have not done much blocking. Sure. Uh, and, and one of the th- reasons I like that is because I can check their nerve vascular status immediately after surgery. 
and their end blocks aren't without complications. Of course. Um, so I think it, it is, it's a really interesting uh, question. And I think in the, in the right hands and it's a, it's a great pain modality. I think, you know, the interesting thing to me about this article and what I've kind of struggled with, I think also is uh, in terms of cost of the patients, expirals and other, you know, liposomal, the, the, I should say the liposomal bupivacaine we have available to us now is not necessarily cheap. No. Um, it's a pretty expensive modality right now. And so, and I'm not, you know, suggesting that, you know, because obviously the opioid crisis is critical too. What this paper has shown though, and I think in terms of conclusions that I can draw about this is that in the early post-op period, this is helpful. Whether it, you know, I, I think that my understanding of opioid addiction is that that doesn't necessarily occur within the first five days of being an opioid-based medicine. Um, I think all of us would like to decrease our prescriptions of that and I um, and, and get less of it out there for sure. That should be a huge goal. But I think that, you know, it's really important to understand. And the paper actually points this out as a limitation. One thing that I do with my patients is I just set the expectations. I say, you know, this is going to hurt. Yeah. And ice is huge. And, you know, staying on top of it and being ahead of it. But we also need to get you off these as soon as possible. And so um, I think just telling people that and making sure that they understand there's some level of pain associated with this is a really important aspect of this as well. Something so I else I took yeah. from this paper, which I don't think I ever thought of, was that they pre-medicated all their patients. Right, and too. so, I mean, that's something I don't do, but in this paper, they gave them 1,000 milligrams of Tylenol pre-op and gabapentin. Yeah. Um, and so I, that may be something that I need to add to I th- my yeah. practice. I mean, I think a great paper, maybe in follow-up to this one, is eliminate the interscaling block. Yeah. See what this stuff does by itself. So I'll give you an example as well. I do most of my ACLs are BTB autographs yeah. and I've stopped doing blocks completely in the, in the, in ACL patients. I know we know to avoid doing a femoral block cause the, cause the nerve and quad never recovers. But, um, some, of some of the hospitals or which anesthesiologists you guys use, but a lot of the times they're wanting to do adductor or saphenous canal blocks. Right. There was a great study published about, I think it was October last year. It was in the um, Clinical Journal of Sports Medicine, and they did a, a, a randomized trial where it was out of New Zealand, I think. Um, but they looked at the adductor approach to a saphenous nerve block for hamstring ACLs compared to nothing or just multimodal analgesia, and there was no difference in the groups. So I sort of looked at that and thought, you know, what's the point? I've started actually using some uh, Expirel for ACLs. I put it all around the knee. I put a little bit into the knee and then mainly in the front of the knee where your graft harvest is coming from, where, uh, you know, a lot of the pain is coming from, from, from an ACL. And I, I've been really impressed with how well these, these people do, these patients do uh, postoperatively. It's, it's, I see them in PACU and they just are in no pain. Yeah, and it's good. And so, you know, some technical pearls on that. Yeah, I was talking to some of our PEDS colleagues over at Scottish Rite who are excellent, and uh, they use this in their kids. And the, and the reason, so in this paper, they did this field block with this. Yeah. And so, and they diluted it out with the saline because the thing about the liposomal nature of it, it does not diffuse. So it's not like you just get it close and it's, it's in the right spot. It's, it, it stays there. So you have to do those 1.5 you know, centimeter increments. Yeah. And then basically it has to be a continuous wheel around for it to work. And that, you know, it's the same thing around an incision in front of an ACL. You have to kind of get the whole area. Right. And so that's why you dilute it. So you have more to go, more, more to fluid so you don't run out. For sure. Yeah. So that's about 10 minutes. Uh, Mike, summary for us here. I think that this is an important tool for us to use, especially as we're trying to decrease the number of opioid prescriptions we're writing. Um, I think that, uh, like you said, I think that there's more work that needs to be done. And I think an excellent um, sort of next study would be to take out the interscaling block portion of this and see just what the field block uh, and the suprascapular nerve block do by themselves. Um, again, I think that the jury's still out as to whether what this is going to ultimately do in terms of decreasing dependency, decreasing you know the, the, the opioid issue that we, that we face. But certainly in the short term, in terms of decreasing pain, early post-operative pain and decreasing opioid prescriptions. I think this is an absolutely uh, important step to take. Are you currently doing this for your shoulder scopes? This blocking technique? Yeah. No, because yeah. still, we're still doing mostly under general. Right. Um, it's something I think I'd move towards. Right. I'd, I might be do. I might try the field block and the supraspinal nerve block in isolation and see what that does. See what happens, yeah. Um, but I, I, I'm pretty, I want my patients off opioids within four or five days after surgery anyway. And for so, sure. 
Uh, I think, you know, the other thing that really works well, I think it's Sheena said, I think that uh, how many, how, have you, how many of you guys are in, in general, not just shoulder surgery, but pre-medicating your patients. I think that's a really, also another really interesting thing to look at Yeah. Uh, in terms of whether that will help decrease. Afterwards do you guys, as well. do you guys know if you're doing that right now? It depends on what anesthesiologist I have. Right. I think, I think so. it also depends on the center as well yeah. on what their yeah. protocol is. Yeah. Agreed. I, mean, I know the only patients that I make sure they get it as a total knee arthroplasty. And I think we probably should just expand some of those medications to these other procedures. Yeah. Right. Thanks, Mike. Okay. So that's about 10 minutes as well. We're going to move on to uh, article number three here with Brett Rayner. This is published in the March edition, uh, March, 2019 orthopedic journal of sports medicine. Uh, and I think this is a very interesting article and it's a very interesting topic right now in knee sports medicine uh it's entitled uh bridge enhanced anterior cruciate ligament repair two-year results of a first in human study so i think the most important word in the title is repair so maybe we start with that right tell, yeah, tell so us the difference here i'll expand on that so some some background so the anterior cruciate ligament is a ligament on the inside of the knee that's one of the most common ligaments in the knee that's torn. All right, and so when that ligament is torn, we have two options for how to treat it. Uh, we can repair it, meaning we leave that old ligament there and we try to sew it back. Or more commonly, what has generally been the practice is we reconstruct it because uh, you know there were some studies done that had some uh, suboptimal results with ACL repair because it's inside the joint. It doesn't have the ability to heal as well because all of its healing factors get diffused throughout the joint. It doesn't have the ability to grow along a scaffold necessarily, uh, especially if it's torn in its mid-substance. So we, for the most part, we reconstruct, meaning we take the old ligament out and we make a new one out of something. There's several different graft options and using other tendons and uh, ligaments to do that. Um, but this is a bridge-enhanced anterior cruciate ligament repair study. And so this was a 12 to 24 month follow-up of patients who underwent the bare procedure, bridge enhanced ACL repair, um, compared with a non-randomized control group. And essentially it's a follow-up study of their previous paper from 2016, where they reported their initial results for up to three months of this exact same co cohort. This is the basically the two-year follow-up of that. Um, and so what is the bare procedure? Well, it's an ACL repair, meaning they're putting stitches and trying to repair the patient's own ACL without taking it out and making a new one. Um, and it's augmented with this, I think it's a proprietary extracellular matrix, scaffolds, almost like a sponge that's reconstituted with the patient's blood. Um, and it's used to contain and bridge that ACL repair. Uh, it's basically what they do. So the technique is described in there. Basically they're drilling you know, 2.4 guide pins in the footprints on the femur and the tibia. Um, uh, through the scope, then they make an arthrotomy, open up the joint, put uh, some vicral stitches into the tibial ACL stump, and then putting those vicrals along with the number two ethabon through a button on the femur, um, and then using the ethabon, which is a permanent suture, to kind of contain this bare extracellular matrix sponge, you know, sponge thing that they put in yeah. there to bridge the gap. Um, and that goes along the same course, and then they bring the knee into full extension and fix the ethabon on the tibia um, uh, to tension it as well. Um, and so that is the bare procedure. And so this is a cohort study, level two evidence. Uh, study groups included 10 knees in each group. So 10 were Very in the- small. Yeah, 10 were in the bare group. And then 10 underwent a four-stranded hamstring autograft uh, reconstruction with endo button on the femur and interference screw on the tibia. Um, all performed by a single surgeon. Uh, the groups all had similar characteristics, and they both underwent the same post-operative protocol, which was zero to 50 degrees for two weeks, zero to 90 for four weeks, um, touchdown weight-bearing for two weeks, and then weight-bearing is taller with crutches for two weeks after that. So, um, you know, they had a bunch of different inclusion criteria, uh, but the main difference in inclusion criteria was that to be considered um, eligible for the bear group, the repair group, you had to have at least... 50% of the length of the ACL remaining attached to the tibia um, on the MRI. Um, and you have to be less than a month out from the injury that, uh, that uh, tore the ACL. Um, 
so in terms of outcomes, uh, so they compare these two groups, uh, they looked at IKDC and CUS scores um, and all improved from baseline in both groups. And there was no significant difference between the groups at two years. Uh, so similar um, knee scores and looking at physical exam, all patients had a firm endpoint in both groups. Um, instrumented laxity as measured by KT1000 was similar at all time points in both groups. Um, functional outcomes and uh, uh, were similar except hamstring strength as measured by a diamond thermometer was lower in the hamstring autograph group where they of had course. their hamstrings harvested. Yep. Right. Um, looking at MRIs, um, so basically the same between each group. So um, they basically all had continuous tissue half of the ACLs in the bear group, but also half in the ACL reconstruction group uh, had some high water content in the mid-substance of both groups, um, but that was really the only abnormality. Um, reoperations, one patient in each group um, developed a medial meniscus tear afterwards that required a reoperation some point in the two years following the initial procedure, uh, and there were no infections and no evidence of any arthrofibrosis or any sort of adverse reactions to the bear's scaffold. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, conclu the conclusion from that was that there were similar results to hamstring autograph in this small 10, 10 patient in each uh, cohort and that it deserves further study. Yes. So this is, this whole topic around, and I find it interesting because I think, you know, back when we were coming through medical school, ACL repair was a, th a thing. And then it came out of favor and it was all ACL reconstruction and the graft choice flip-flopped between BTB and hamstring, and now it seems to go back to BTB, but it now seems like ACL repair is back. We're seeing it come up in the literature a lot more, um, but recently it's been getting some bad press. So we, we were talking a little bit earlier about this one study. It was published in, in AGSN in February um, where it showed that they looked at ACL repairs, and it was the first three years after surgery of 48% failure rate compared to about a 4.7% failure rate for uh, reconstruction. So I think probably what's happening now, and the pendulum sh sort of swings from one extreme to the other until we find the midline, but the indications for doing an ACL repair are probably being stretched a little bit too far in that, um, you know, some of the ones that probably shouldn't be, uh, repair shouldn't be attempted they're going and doing it, and that's leading to a higher failure rate for all comers. Do you know? Do you know what I mean? This is a little bit different, though, and it's not really our standard avulsion off the femur that we're trying to repair. It's actually a mid-substance rupture of the ACL that we're trying to sort of sew together. Right, and they talk about that in the study. So, because this is a bridge-enhanced scaffold, uh, bridging the gap, yeah. uh, you know, complete reapproximation of the ACL to its bony origin is not necessary. So um, that's the, that's the, what's different about this. And so, you know, you know, one question is, I mean, are y'all doing ACL repairs? I know we were talking about this earlier. Yeah. So I've done, I've done two in the last little while, few months, they've both been young kids and uh, growth plates open and they've both been, I'm pretty, you know, I'm ready to abort and go to a reconstruction. I have everything there, but they've both been avulsion. So I think it's type one where the tendon is, or the ligament has completely come off the femoral side and it's basically just floating in the notch. So I'm able to get some good bites through it. I drill a four millimeter or they're about tunnel up, which I don't think is going to affect the, the growth plate. And then I pull, I put the sutures through. It's sort of like a, Chris Ahmad describes it a little bit. It's uh, you put, attach your sutures onto an endo button. You push the endo button up, it flips on the, on the lateral cortex of the femur, and then you tension it on the endo button and tie over. So the, I have not done this operation. This has been more like your standard repair where it's an avulsion and you're trying to reapproximate uh, the ligament back onto the wall. I also take a, you know, put a few micro fractures into the wall to try and stimulate some bone marrow and healing around where the, anatomic footprint is that you're trying to pull the tendon or the ligament back up to. Yeah. So, you know, one drawback of this study is that it is a small number of patients, but that's, that's by design. So this is, this is a continuation. So this is Martha Murray's work. Uh, this is a continuation of what was, um, you know, verified in the animal model. 
and then they brought it to humans. They had they published their initial study with three month results, and now these are the two year results. And uh, you know they they wanted to keep the numbers small because they wanted to make sure nothing bad was going to happen before they do this on a larger scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now we have you know ten ten knees that have been followed out for two years with no adverse reactions, and in general very good functional outcomes. And the nice thing about this is that since it's a bridging procedure, the hardest thing for me about deciding to do an ACL repair is knowing ahead of time if I'm going to be able to repair it. You know, right. having that discussion about an ACL, there's so many decisions to make with an ACL of, you know, when do we do it? What are the menisci going to look like? What type of graft are we going to use? You know, the unknowns are difficult to discuss with families uh, ahead of time. And so um, the nice thing that I see about this is potentially the future for ACL repair are that, Hey, if I can't get it back, at least I have this thing that can bridge it and it can potentially heal across. And so it eliminates that, like, I don't know if I can be able to repair this thing or not. Um, you know, one more unknown going into surgery, which as a surgeon is, you know, like one of my least favorite things is not knowing exactly what I'm going to do before yeah. I get in there. What do you, what do you guys think? Like, do you think ACL repair is coming back? Do you think it's a thing to, here to stay? Do you think it's the future of how we do ACLs? What, what, what do you think? I don't think that. So, and this is a bias of the way I was trained. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, I don't think that pure ACL repair without some sort of bio- biologic augmentation is going to, is I'm, I'm biased. I don't think that's a great operation. Um, except for maybe in the very select few isolated patients. And the thing that's, that's challenging for me about this is that we have, and especially these are skeletally mature patients that, so we have a really good operation to treat this. Uh, and I think that, you know, it fits, there are other, a lot of other pathologies like Brett just talked about that can go on the knee that can make post-operatively uh, rehabilitation and getting back to um, the level that patient wants to get back to difficult. But I think that purely dealing with an, IC, an ACL deficient knee in a skeletally mature patient, and it's not a revision situation, we, we generally get really good results with those patients. And for me, I mean, I think this would come into play much more in a, in a patient that's skeletally immature where I was trying to really avoid it, harvesting any graft in them. Uh, and once the biology and I think our biologics get to the point where I really believe that, you know, the other thing that's really important for me is that is the next step of this study where they show me that this holds up in high level athletes that are going to cut and pivot on their knee. You know, I, I think that, um, I think that it's a great first step. I'm all for this. I think it's going in the right direction. I think biologics is the next frontier in orthopedics. We're going to talk about that a little bit with the next paper as well. Um, but I'm a little bit probably conservative and reserved when it comes to what I think the promise of this is. I think that ACL primary repair without biologic augmentation or without a new twist to it uh, is not necessarily, uh, as you mentioned with that paper that was published in AGSM, uh, except for in the very specific patient, a good idea. Uh, if it was my knee, um, I think I'd probably just go with a standard BTB autographed. Um, that's probably what I'd want in my knee or my son or daughter's knee if they were skeletally mature. Um, but that's where, again, that's the bias of my background and my training and also where I think biologists are now. In the next 10 years, do I think that this is something that potentially could be a huge um, innovation in orthopedics? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think this is the this is the beginning of this. Agreed. Um, you know, yeah. one one thing that the same group found in their preclinical studies was in the animal models they showed less post traumatic arthritis in the bear group. Um, and you know, right. well, why is that? I think one of the proposed you know arguments is that you know by maintaining the native ACL, you you maintain its proprioceptive fibers, you have better feel of the joint, and maybe have less post-traumatic arthritis in the future. Sure. And so, I mean, it is kind of exciting. This is very, this is the beginning of this. Yeah. Um, but these are, are some pretty, good, I'm going to cut you off there. Cause we're at about 12 minutes. Results. You know, we're going to get back to you in mm-hmm. a sec. Final take home on the ACL repair. Final, final take home on, on this, on this study, the, the bear procedure are that, uh, it appears to be safe and, uh, at least have similar results to hamstring autograph reconstruction at two years post-operatively without any adverse events. Um, it does require an arthrotomy, but at the same time, patients are doing well according to this study, and it does deserve further study and look forward to see what they publish in the future. Awesome. Uh, okay, I'm left with the last article here. Uh, this is a journal of arthroscopy. It's published January 2019. Uh, title is Intraarticular Injection of Platelet-Rich Plasma PRP is Superior to Hyaluronic Acid or Saline Solution 
in treatment of mild to moderate knee osteoarthritis, a randomized, double-blind, triple-parallel, placebo-controlled clinical trial. That's a mouthful. Um, so we have talked, Sheena and I, uh, and I have talked about this, and, and there's a couple, I'm going to go through it quickly. You guys, I want you to chime in whenever you whenever you want here and give your thoughts. Uh, I love this stuff. I love I love a few things about this uh, trial. There's a couple shocking results and and some methodology that I'll talk about. But um, I I don't know what you guys think. I love sham trials. I just think it's a great comparison. Yeah, I agree 100. percent Yeah, it's a true comparison. Right? You you don't seem to get them out of the United States very often. They do them in in Scandinavia it's a bunch. Do in Canada too. Right there you go. Um, but so this is a sham control. So in that they're injecting saline into a third of the patients in this trial. So we'll go third. So basically their, their idea was they're going to take 87 patients, uh, with osteoarthritic knees, and they're going to be randomized to one of three groups. And each of the three groups is going to receive a weekly injection for three weeks. The first group is going to get leukocyte poor PRP. I'm going to talk a bit about that. Second group is going to get hyaluronic acid um, or a gel visco supplementation injection. And the third group is just going to get normal saline. And they're going to look at how these patients do. Uh, They take results at zero baseline, one month, two months, six months, and then 12 months after to see how they did. So the results, all groups improved. That's the first thing here. All groups, even the normal saline group improved uh, from baseline to one month. However, as the title of this study sort of tells you, the PRP group uh, sustained the most significant improvement uh, in both of their outcome measures, which are the uh, WOMAC and IKDC scores um, at 12 months. So basically they all improved at one month, but after one month, the results were maintained for the PRP group but they started to deteriorate for both the hyaluronic acid and the saline groups. Um, so that was it. That was their, their, their finding. There was no significant difference in both functional outcomes between the hyaluronic acid and the normal saline groups at any time point. So that's another thing, sort of negatively reflecting on the hyaluronic acid group a little bit in this. And I've got, I've got a number of things to, to, to say, but their overall conclusion was that intraarticular injections of leukocyte-poor PRP can provide a clinically significant functional improvement for at least one year in patients with mild to moderate osteoarthritis of the knee. Initial thoughts, you guys. I mean, one difficult thing now is that, you know, if you look at what the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons says, you know, their recommendations is that um, they don't support the use of hyaluronic acid. And the difficult thing with patients is that sometimes you, it's nice to have that as an option just to buy some time because they're not candidates for a total knee replacement. The other thing is that the AAOS doesn't recommend for or against PRP. And so, you know, hopefully with studies like this, that'll change and we'll be able to give our patients some better guidance. So I, I totally agree with you. I think that hyaluronic acid has a place in sports medicine, and I think it works for the right patient. It, it definitely works for some people. Um, here's the thing is that you can't just say hyaluronic acid and you can't just say PRP. So I'll give you a great example and why it's sort of tough in, in discerning this literature and trying to pick out points. I was reading this study back in January where it came out, and I actually had a couple months of, of, of uh, journals in front of me, and one of them was the February AJSM. And this is the title of this, this journal, Platelet-Rich Plasma versus Hyaluronic Acid Injections for the Treatment of Knee Osteoarthritis Results at Five Years of a Double-Blind Randomized Control Trial. Their conclusions were both treatments were effective in improving knee functional status with symptoms over time, PRP did not provide an overall superior clinical improvement compared to HA in terms of either symptomatic functional improvement at different follow-up points or effect duration. So different journal, one month apart, almost the, you would think, identical trial, PRP exactly the same as hyaluronic acid. A month later in arthroscopy, PRP beats hyaluronic acid. And I'll just go through a little bit of the methodology. So first of all, the one thing I picked up in the in the arthroscopy trial was how did they do their PRP? So they use this thing called a Regenten kit dash THT, where they first of all they 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 drew they did a blood draw that was 10 ml of blood, 
and they did a single spin at 1500 RPMs for eight minutes and that yielded their PRP. So in my experience, I'm taking a lot more than 10 ml to try and get a PRP concentration that's high enough. So I guess then it comes back to what's your definition of platelet-rich plasma? And I think a lot of people will just simply say it's a concentration of the platelets that's higher than baseline. So what is the concentration that you need to get to? I think a lot of people would probably think it, you know, five, six, seven times baseline is is where you want to be for knee osteoarthritis. This one was 1.8 times baseline. So whether or not you would say it was a good, uh, you know, concentration of platelets, that's I think that's very debatable. The other thing they said it was leukocyte poor PRP, but it says here that the product is considered leukocyte poor PRP because nearly 70% of the white cells are removed during each centrifugation. So I would look at that on the flip side and say that this is a 30% leukocyte PRP, which I would probably define as a leukocyte-rich PRP, but it still did quite well. So there's that. The second thing I would say about this is getting into the hyaluronic acid. You can cough if you want. I'll take it out. <coughs> Sorry, guys. So with the with the hyaluronic acid, the one thing that and I'm and I'm genuinely interested in this stuff, but I think what and what Brian Cole stuff sort of says as well is that it is what's important is the molecular weight. Correct. And this is it's twenty five hundred kilodaltons is the molecular weight of this HA product, which if you compare it to all the ones that are commercially available, I, w- I think this is, pro- I wouldn't say it's low or high. I think it's sort of moderate in terms of the molecular weight. So it's not, I, I don't, I don't, you can't find anything out there that tells you that this is what defines being a high molecular weight product. They're, they're sort of range from about 700 to now we've got these cross-linked uh, hyaluron So now we've got these cross-linked products that they can't even measure their molecular weight. So it's hard to even say, is that high or not? I I, I don't know. But anyways, for what they did here, it was a very, very low uh, concentration compared to baseline, 1.8 times, which I think where a lot of people are losing a lot higher these days. Whether or not it's in fact leukocyte rich or poor, I'm not sure. They say it's a leukocyte poor, um, which it it might be. Um, But it outperformed their hyaluronic acid product that they were using, which I think has a, has a moderate uh, molecular weight. If you compare it to what they're doing in the other study, which showed equivalent results that was published in AGSM, they're using a leukocyte-rich PRP. So what they did in that one is they drew 150 mLs of whole blood. They separated it into, uh, I think, four um, different products or, or, or around about that 30 cc's one was sent to the lab for uh, to, to, to get the numbers and then they spun it down and it, it preso- resulted in a PRP product that was 4.6 times compared to baseline um, and then the the hyaluronic acid one that was used here they also define it as a high molecular weight hyaluronic acid it's called hyalubix um, and it has a molecular weight of 1500 so it has a is a lot lower than the one in the arthroscopy journal, fifteen hundred versus twenty five hundred. They're both being defined as high molecular weights, but but in fact they're I don't I don't I don't know if either of them are. Anyways, this is this is a lot of technical terms here, but it just shows you you can't just sort of take a study for what you read the title to be because they're completely different trials when you're actually looking at what's being compared. What do you guys think? I think you hit the nail on the head. And that's what makes it so challenging with these with these articles and with discerning this literature. And it makes it hard when challenging when you're talking to patients too. You know, I think that that's the literature is all over the place because there's so many formulations of PRP. All the ways to prepare it are basically proprietary. So what the concentration is, how much leukocyte, what the leukocyte percentage is, what the PRP percentage is. Same thing with with hyaluronic acid, the molecular weight. Um, all of that stuff is all over the board. And so trying to control that and really get a good trial where you can have adequate power and really find out whether there's a significant difference is not impossible, but it requires an enormous sum of money and a lot of time. So much time. And I always get frustrated reading these things and think how far we are away from, you know, where we need to be in terms of, you know, how much blood do you draw? How many spins do you do? How, what's the, 
how much PRP do you actually inject into the knee? There's got to be a sweet spot where both the volume and the concentration is not high enough or it gets too high and then becomes toxic to the internal environment in the knee. How much time do you put between the injections? How many injections do you do? Do you use an activating agent? Um, what preparation method do you use? Well, I mean, yeah, we, we don't know any of these things. Nothing. And then, you know, and, and it gets even cloudier. I mean, we're going to expand this to talk about biologics in general, but you start talking about stem cells, you start talking about all these really cool things that potentially are, the, you know, the future of, of medicine and orthopedics for sure. And it just gets really, really hard uh, to figure out how to come to some sort of, you know, concise way to think about it. And I, um, I think we kind of, in, in a way, as orthopedic surgeons and academics are trying to, you know, are doing these studies and trying to be involved in it uh, at an academic level, um, you know, we publish all this stuff and it's, it's, and, but if there's no uniformity, it, it kind of, the literature gets to be so clogged with all these studies that it really becomes difficult to make heads or tails of it. It's, it's hard to advise patients too, because, you know, yeah. I use hyaluronic acid in my practice because I can get it approved a lot of times, you know? It doesn't work for some people. It works great for other people. Yeah. I don't know who that person's going to be, but there's not a lot of downside to it. Um, other, you know, other than having to get an injection. All right. Um, but the hard thing about having kind of different results in the literature, especially for the biologics, is, you know, that's you know, insurance doesn't pay for that. Um, at least from where I am. Uh, and so I would like to be able to give patients some hard evidence as they're trying to make this decision about whether or not it's worth their investment. And it's tough sometimes to be able to, uh, to t talk to them about that if you don't have consistent results. Yeah. And I think we have to be stewards for our patients because a lot of times, you know, they're not seeing orthopedic surgeons that are recommending that they have these biologic injections. Um, and so a lot of times they'll come to me and I'll say, look, I just, uh, that's not what you need. That's not going to, you know, well, along that point, I mean, I think I think that the other challenging thing about this is just in terms of advertising, and it's not just orthopedic surgeons that are offering these kinds of injections, right? And so, I don't know what you guys' experience has been with patients in the clinic, but the amount of misinformation, you know, that's not not even level one, level two evidence, leave that out, but just advertisements in the paper, people talking about, and we didn't even discuss this, but you know, it's really important to me for patients to understand is with all these biologics, I'm not aware of a single level one study that shows that you actually reverse the disease process. This is symptom management, you know, and if, and in my mind, and I think most people are interested in biologics, intuitively speaking, if you have somebody with mild to moderate arthritis in their knee, let's just use the most basic patient that comes to see us in the office and you're looking at an intervention like an injection, you know, the, what I always say is the gold standard that insurance companies will pay for is cortisone, right? Which is a drug. Um, the other options that are available to us pharmacologically, hyaluronic acid, and there are these biologics intuitively i would rather start with something that comes from my own body that potentially could have symptomatic relief for me before i inject something that a might control my symptoms but also i know that's not necessarily healthy for my remaining good cartilage cells so but that's not the way that it's funded and that's not where our healthcare system supports that line of thinking i completely so, completely agree you know it's it's yeah. really challenging cuz you you don't you want to be supportive of it with patients that you think are it's indicated in and it's a valid it's a valid option um, and, and steer maybe patients who, who you don't think is as good an option for away from it, but at the same time, um, you struggle with their making sure that their perceptions and their expectations are in line with what they should expect from it. And also saying like, I'm sorry, but I, I don't know whether it's going to work for you or not. Right. You know, that's the other issue. And then we and go you're and ask them to pay for it. Yeah. You know, which is challenging. And then we go and I don't know if we do, but someone gives it this name, regenerative medicine. Oh, right, 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 right. You know, it's like what are we regenerating? Nothing, I would say, you know, we're trying to control the symptoms, but we certainly don't have any proof that we're regenerating anything yet that I'm aware of. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that there are good data for the efficacy of PRP in, in certain studies. So it's not like, I mean, there's some studies that like this one, it shows that it works. It's just hard to, we don't know what the real answer is, but it, it because there's, it's such, it's so variable right now. Right. Um, you know, I think there was another systematic review that kind of reviewed a bunch of the, uh, the literature that was out there and it was pretty favorable for PRP for the treatment of mild to moderate knee arthritis. So, um, I think it is a very good tool. It's just, it's a conversation you have to have with patients about payment. Yeah. I think, you know, if it was your knee and money wasn't an issue or insurance wasn't an issue, you'd probably want to try PRP first. That's what I would want. Yeah, I agree. 
Um, so I'll just summarize this, 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 in this article, I think the main point is just not to just read the 10. You sort of have to go into it a little bit and try and figure out what sort of PRP they're using and what are they comparing it to hyaluronic acid? What's the molecular weight, how many injections and so on, and try and figure it out from there, I suppose. But this study showed that leukocyte poor PRP was, was better than the HA that they used and also better than saline at their outcomes up to a year. So that's about it. So that does it. That was our first journal club. I hope you guys liked it. We're going to go around the table here. Just tell you got 20 seconds. Tell us what you're doing and where people can uh, get in touch with you. We'll start with uh, Brett. Start with me. Yeah. yeah. So I'm Brett Rayner. I'm at Texas Orthopedic Associates in Dallas, Texas, and I do uh, knee, hip, and shoulder surgery and sports medicine. Uh, you can find us. Uh, you can find me at brettraynermd.com or txorthopedic.com. Um, awesome. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Brett. Thanks for having me. You're welcome, Mike. Uh, I'm Mike Kerr. I'm at the Carroll Clinic in uh, Dallas, Texas. Um, you can contact me either through the Carroll Clinic website uh, or through my website, caresportsmd.com. Um, I, like Brett, do uh, mainly sports surgery, uh, arthroscopic surgery of the shoulder, hip, and knee. Um, and uh, I'm always open to see new patients and tackle new problems. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Sheena. I'm Sheena Black. Again, I'm at Orthopedic Associates of Dallas. Uh, to find me, you can go to SheenaBlackMD.com, or you can find me at our website for our group, DallasOrtho.com. Uh, like these other guys, I do knee, hip, and shoulder arthroscopy, trained in sports medicine. So thanks for having me, Andrew. Guys, thanks so much for doing that. I think that was awesome. We're going to try to do this again, so hopefully you'll uh, come and join me. Thanks again. Yeah, thank Love you. Love to. Thank you. Thanks, All right, guys. Cheers.